We're so glad to have all of you with us this morning. We are studying the book of Isaiah together. And so we are in the book of Isaiah. We'll be in chapter 49 this morning. So if you'd like to turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah 49, that's where we'll be spending our time together today. Isaiah 49. And so we'll just begin together by looking at first few verses. Let's read through verse 4 together. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow in his quiver. He hid me away. And he said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right hand is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. Let's start looking at our text. What we're going to find here is that what we're focusing our attention on, first of all, is just what the scripture is telling us, what, what concept it's leading us to. Now, if you remember back in chapter 48, just look, for example, at chapter 48, verse 12. Just look back there. Just glance with your eyes back there. Chapter 48, verse 12. Look at what it says. Listen to me, who? Oh, Jacob and Israel. Okay, and then back to chapter 49. Listen to me, oh, coastlands, and give your attention. People from afar. People from afar. Listen. Coastlands. Well, that's kind of the same as us saying to the ends of the earth. Well, because at the coast, the earth ends, right? And it becomes water. So we only naturally understand that when it says to the ends of the earth and to the coastlands, it's saying people from everywhere, listen and give your attention to what I'm speaking to you. Listen, people everywhere. Now, back in 48, it was a little bit more narrow, wasn't it? Listen, Jacob, listen, Israel. And now we switch and we say, listen, everyone, everyone pay attention even to where the earth ends. All people, listen up and hear what I have to say. And now, what's being said? What's so important that everybody needs to listen and pay attention? Give your attention, people from afar. Okay, you've got my attention. What is it that you have to say? I'm anxious to know. Are you anxious to know? It says, second half of verse 1, The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword, and in the shadow of his hand he hid me. Do you notice these pronouns here? Me. Who's me? He called me. We want to know who this is, because this is what we're supposed to give our attention to, right? Listen, everybody, everywhere, to this. The Lord called me. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. And he made me like a polished arrow in his quiver. He hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. So now we have kind of this seemingly mysterious figure identified. Who is it? His servant, Israel. But I said, the servant says, I have labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet, surely my right hand is with the Lord and my recompense is with my God. 
Israel has been identified as God's servant before. Back in chapter 42, just listen to how Israel is identified. Listen to the words here, because we're talking about a servant, the servant of God, but listen to how it, we, we focused on this. You'll remember, as soon as I read it, you're going to remember. Isaiah 42, 19. Who is blind but my servant? Or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind but my dedicated one? Who is blind as the servant of the Lord? Blind. Deaf. Is a blind and deaf servant uh, going to be a good quality servant for you? Uh, I, probably not. Let's just admit that, right? But here we have the servant identified over in chapter 49 as actually doing something quite miraculous. This servant is faithful. This servant is good. This servant is obedient. This servant is being something great, unlike the servant that we've read about. The blind and deaf, disobedient servant is all of a sudden transformed into a servant who can do great, wondrous things. What has happened to the servant for this great turnaround? That's, our, that's kind of our big question. What makes the servant so different all of a sudden? There are mentions of a servant of God who is faithful and righteous, just, obedient, and actually is a savior and a redeemer. This servant is, is specifically mentioned in four different places in the book of Isaiah, and they're called servant songs. I've got the references here on the screen for you. These are the four servant songs in Isaiah. And so uh, we have the first in 42 verses 1 through 9, and then the second is where? Well, in 49, 1 through 13. That's where we are today. And then the third is going to be in chapter 50. And then the fourth time is going to be in 52. So that's with, with how many chapters there are in the book of Isaiah, this is kind of condensed into a little area, isn't it? Talking about this righteous servant. Isaiah 49, is, is it speaking about the disobedient servant? Or is it speaking about this wonderful, obedient servant? Well, we already know it's talking about the wonderful, obedient servant. But we have to already make that distinction as we try to understand the text, don't we? So here's the question. I'll say it plainly. Is Isaiah 49 talking about an ethnic group of people, Israel, or is it talking about someone named by that name but actually begins to be understood as far greater than that collective people? Is this about them or is this about something greater? Listen to the characteristics of this servant. He was called from the womb and named in his mother's womb. Is that Israel, the disobedient, or the servant to come? His mouth was like a sharp sword. Which one is that? He was hidden in the hand of God. Which one is that? He was as an arrow of God in his quiver, a polished arrow. You know, it, just think about that, right? Your weapon is a bow and an arrow. And in this, you find one arrow and you polish it. This arrow has a purpose, and I will not miss. Right? You get the idea? Do you get that in the, in the imagery here? So I'm saving that one for something special, right? And so he is, the servant is this arrow that he's going to shoot. When God shoots an arrow, what do you think? Are you going to miss or are you going to hit? He's probably going to hit right when he intends, how he intends. God doesn't miss. So the servant is that arrow. That's pretty exciting. He's about to shoot something, and he's going to hit it exactly like he intended. 
and he was the one to bring glory to God. But here's the sad part. This servant, as we read, he says, look at verse 4, but this servant, he said, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing and for vanity. That's the polished arrow speaking. How can that be? These concepts kind of don't really make sense. So the image we have is of God taking an arrow, polishing it, specific purpose, he shoots it, and the arrow says, I feel like I'm doing nothing. But he says, one thing I know for sure, do you see it? My right is with the Lord and my recompense is with my God. I feel like something else here, but I trust that my strength and my reward is with my God. Could this be talking about the great servant that is to come? Did he ever feel like that? I'm going to fast forward just a little bit to Isaiah 50, and I'm going to read just a few verses, because as you can see from the screen, Isaiah 50 is also one of the servant songs. Let's see what it says then. This is beginning in verse 5. Just listen to the language. The Lord has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. Stop right there. Which servant does that sound like? The good, obedient servant or the disobedient, blind, and deaf servant? This sounds like the, the righteous, obedient servant, right? I was not rebellious. As we've been reading and studying about the people of Israel, do we see them as an obedient people or as a rebellious people? as a rebellious people, no doubt. That's why the Assyrians came. That's why the Babylonians came, right? This was punishment from their God. So very much a rebellious people. But then the servant says in, in, in chapter 50, verse 5, I was not rebellious, and I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike me, my cheeks to those who pull out my beard, and I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Who is this starting to sound like? But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let's stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Who will do that? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. So, do you hear that, that struggle between something coming upon you that is that is um, drains your soul. Do you hear it in the language there? Reviling, spitting, and then he calls out to God, God, I know that he will vindicate me. The people are not vindicating me, but I know that God will vindicate me. And that sounds exactly like the servant in 49, in chapter 49, doesn't it? Because he says, I feel like all this is for naught, for nothing, but I trust in one thing, and I know that my God will be the one who delivers me. My righteousness is with my God. And that is where I will put my hope. We don't even have to go very far in the text, do we? To automatically begin to draw out incredibly meaningful application to our lives. Many of us will feel like we are not vindicated here on earth even when we stand up strongly for faith in our God. And you will have at times moments where you feel like I just, why, why, why is this what's happening? But you have to say, just as our Lord did, although I am not vindicated in the sight of the people, 
I will be vindicated in the sight of my God. And in that, I can trust. Do you carry that with you through all circumstances? Do you know that being faithful and obedient as a servant is what God would call you to? And so regardless of what's happening externally, people spitting on you, you turn your back. By the way, when, when we read in Isaiah 50, which you know, we'll get to in more detail when we get to it, but he was hit and he turned his back as to say what? Hit me again. Also to say, I am not turning and striking you in retaliation. Whatever you do to me, understand that I'm not seeking your approval, your vindication. I'm seeking the approval and vindication of my God, and I know that I have it. And for us, how do we have it? By faith in Jesus Christ, the righteous one. We have been vindicated in the eyes of our God, regardless of our situations. But there's so much more. We're not, we're not stopping there. We're just, we're ramping up, okay? We're ramping up to what this text has in store for us. So who is this great servant? You've already put the pieces together. You know who this great servant is. This is Jesus Christ. This is the great servant that is to come. But I want to show you one thing as we begin talking about the servant, because as you can see, we're in chapter 49, and we've got a lot more servant language to come. And so let's just set the base for what is to come. So we're going to be thinking about it rightly together. This servant, it is well established in our New Testament that Jesus Christ is the servant to come. And one place I want to show you is going to be uh, in relationship to Matthew 2 and Hosea 11. And so the references are on the screen. We're going to look at both of these, and these are brief, but I just want to establish something as we continue looking at our text, okay? Matthew 2 and Hosea 11, Hosea was who? Of what consequence? A prophet. So Hosea was a prophet, one of the minor prophets. Doesn't mean he didn't have much to say. It just means that his work was not as vast as the other prophets. Okay? So we have a prophet speaking something, and then we have Matthew who picks up on the prophecy and says, let me tell you exactly what was being said about this particular person. So I think that's pretty interesting. Matthew 2, beginning in verse 13 All connected. And again, you would think that this was planned. Like, I mean, I'm just, I'm like a forward thinking, you know, I've got this all planned out. It's going to hit right at the Christmas season. And I, I, I would take the credit for that, but I just, I promise I didn't plan it. It's just, it happens to be there and God is gracious. That's, that's all that I have to say about that. But it just so happens that we are talking about this great servant coming in to the world, which is what we celebrate at this time. So it's pretty amazing. But let's just look, Matthew 2. 13, it says, now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph, that's of Mary and Joseph, in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother, the child is Jesus, of course, and his mother, and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. You know this story. And so they rose, they took, his, the, they took the child and his mother by night, they departed to Egypt and they remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, who? Hosea. Out of Egypt I called my son. Out of Egypt I called my son. Now when we go back to Hosea, Hosea 11, verses 1 and 2, there is a concept here that is directly correlated to this idea of the servant. Okay? 
Hosea 11, verses 1 and 2 says, So Matthew, being well acquainted with the Old Testament scriptures, knew what was written in the prophet Hosea and knew that this scripture was in reference to the birth of the Christ and his life and who he was. And so we're going to go back to the source that Matthew was reading from, which is Hosea 11, and we're going to read verses 1 and 2. It says, when Israel was a child, who? When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Who's the son? In Hosea, who's the son? Israel. In Matthew 2, who's the son? But the more they were called, the more they went away. That's still in Hosea 11. The more I called my son, the more he went away. Who's that sound like? That sounds a lot like Israel. The more I called to them, the more, again, parents, there's so much in here, isn't there? The more I call them, the more they go away. And we get that. The more I called my rebellious son, the more he went away. But then it says, it, they kept sacrificing to the Baals and they were offering burnt idols, or burn, uh, burnings offerings to idols. And so God calls his son out of Egypt. I will make this connection quickly. I just want you to see it. And then we're going to kind of move on back to our text, okay? Now, if you've never noticed this before, you've never seen it before, this is, this is going to kind of open your eyes to understand a little bit of what's going on in our Old Testament as it's understood in the New Testament. And the idea is this. Just think about it. So Israel is in Egypt. They pass through the waters, and then they go into the wilderness to be tempted. And how did they do? They did pretty good. Every challenge that came across them, they were faithful and obedient. Or were they murmuring, complaining, grumbling? Why did you bring us out here anyway? Yeah, the water thing was cool. I, let's admit that. But why did you bring us out here? Take us back to Egypt. At least we had food and water. That's the son that was being called. And the more he called, the more they ran away. Now, there's another servant. You know, Israel is called the servant of God, right? But there's another servant who, listen, was called out of Egypt, passed through the waters of baptism, and then was led into the wilderness to be tempted. Do you see the parallels? Out of Egypt I called my son. Which son? Yes, Israel, but more significantly, my son, the Christ. I called him out of Egypt. He passed through the waters of baptism. He was led into the wilderness to be tempted. And how did he do? He was the obedient servant. He was the faithful son when Israel was the disobedient son. He was the true one to come. He was the true servant to come. He was the fulfillment of all that Israel should have been. He was the good one. Do you see it? I've got it on a screen here. You can just see these, these ideas come together, right? We see this as called out of Egypt, passed through the water, tempted in the wilderness. Which servant are we talking about? Both. This happened to both. One turned out disobedient, whereas the other, obedient. So I would say, in summary, Jesus is the faithful Israel, the Son of God, the obedient servant. Do you see it? Out of Egypt I called my son. Which son? Yes, 
both. Israel, the fulfillment of the obedient servant, him, my son, whom I called. The promise was not made to Abraham and his seeds, but to his seed. Or offsprings, offspring to Christ. And so we see the fulfillment of that as the servant is born to this earth and he is perfectly obedient to the father, whereas Israel was disobedient. So many parallels. There's continual parallels. How many tribes of Israel were there? Twelve. How many apostles did Jesus have? Is that a coincidence? I mean, we'd have to stretch that to find a coincidence there. It's on purpose. The people grew out of the twelve. Guess where we grow from? The foundation of the apostles. That's where we grow from. We also grow from the 12. Do you see it? So Jesus is the faithful servant. He is the obedient servant. He is the son of God. Now that we know that, what is the text trying to tell us about this one? So let's continue on in Isaiah 49, beginning in verse 5. If, you've, if you're left a little blurry with that, that's okay because there's more to come. Well, it's not on the screen anymore. It used to be on the screen. There's more to come with talking about this servant. So it's going to become more clear. Uh, like I said, I want to set the stage for that because as we enter into that, that's, that's the beauty of working through the text together is that next time we get to that, next week, next several weeks, we don't have to lay that foundation anymore. We know where we've come from and we can kind of build on what the text is telling us. So Isaiah 49 verse 5. Now, the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has become my strength. He says, but by the way, all this is, so where it says, now the Lord says, and then we have some words and then it says, he says, it's, it's parenthetical. Do you know what I mean by that? It's like if I said, uh, now, uh, my wife Amanda says, the one whom I love, whom I met, whom I married, this one that is the love of my life that is sitting right here. She says, you see how although that's parenthetical? That's what's happening right here in the text. So it's talking about the Lord and that it's giving information about who he is and what is to come and this great servant. And then it says, he says, so here's what he says. Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant and raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. We've already heard that language, haven't we? To the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to the one deeply despised and abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. So the second part of this is kind of going back to the idea that this great and lofty servant who is the great obedient servant to God in the eyes of men and kings and rulers and people, he will be despised. But it will come when all of those who despised him will bow down before him. Did you see that there? It's, that's what's happening. I'm going to make you, you are the redeemer of Israel. You are the holy one. But it's not going to really appear that way at first. And isn't that the story of Jesus actually coming to earth? Did it appear to be 
this little baby born in such humble circumstances that he was to be the king of the world? Is that how it seemed? When he was despised and rejected among men, when he was killed, tortured, did it seem like that? No. But it will be the case. Kings shall arise, princes, then they're going to prostrate themselves before you because you are the good and righteous servant. Now, we've already covered Isaiah 42 uh, and identified Jesus as the servant. We already went through that one. Um, but there's just two verses I want to read because I want you to see the parallel language between chapter 49 and chapter 42. And it says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people. And look at this next phrase. And as a light to the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, the prisoners that are, that are uh, from the prison, those that are in darkness. Now, this language we understand very clearly because this is a lot of the language we have in the New Testament about what Jesus did, right? It's really plain right there. Here in 49, we got to dig a little bit to see how Jesus is the servant that fulfills these things. And so although there is some scripture that is difficult to understand, does that mean it's not worth it to understand it or that we should glaze over it, move quickly? The hard stuff we move quickly over, and then we focus on the really easy stuff. Is that, is that the point? Is that what we do? Or do we actually take our time to look at what the text says? Even when it's difficult, even when it takes a little bit of understanding to get through it. Is that what we do? That's what we should do. So this phrase is used here, a light for the nations. The servant is to be a light for the nations. A light for the nations. And that, that phrase is only used two times. And it's used in Isaiah 42 of the servant, and it's used in Isaiah 49 of the servant. Now, here is our great, <laughs> great connection because our New Testament quotes from Isaiah 49 three times. In three different authors in three different places quote from Isaiah 49. And when you have that happening, don't you think that probably something very significant is happening right here in Isaiah 49? You should. And aren't you very interested to know how did our New Testament authors, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, understand the words of Isaiah 49 finding their fulfillment? Don't you want to know that as well? What is the best interpreter of Scripture? Thank you. Great answer. That's quick, too. Good job. Scripture is the best interpreter of Scripture. That's absolutely true. So when we go to our... We also have this concept. Get a little excited here. That I found myself getting a little excited. This is because it's so good to, to dig into Scripture and to find these connections and parallels because we find that all of Scripture has the same author. All of Scripture has the same author. And when these things are come, come to light for us, it's, I see it plain as day that the same thing is being said throughout all of Scripture. But there's a concept that you have to understand, which is progressive revelation. Because what is somewhat clouded here in 49 becomes clear for us in the New Testament. It's not as though it's new information, but it's clarified information. It's specified information. Does that make sense? So what is being said here in Isaiah 49, generally, and it's, it's kind of fuzzy. How does it, what does that understand? So then we go to the New Testament, it's like, well, this is what it means. This is who that is. And it becomes very clear. So we have the book of Acts, which is Luke. And then we have Paul writing in 2 Corinthians. And then we also have John in the book of Revelation. All three of those authors quote from Isaiah 49, but they don't all quote the same verse. 
they all are talking about different concepts. So we actually are privileged to have three different concepts clarified for us by the New Testament authors as we study Isaiah 49. By the way, when Jesus went to read in the temple, what scroll did he grab? Isaiah. Isaiah is very significant. It was significant to Jesus. It was significant to the apostles. There is so much to be said about who Jesus is and what he would accomplish in the book of Isaiah. And we get to read that today. It's wonderful that we get to see this with our eyes, that the Lord has preserved his word for us, that we can read. I hope you're excited about that because I certainly am. Let's look at our first parallel because it comes out of the passage we just read. Isaiah 49, second half. By the way, when you see letters next to the verses, you know, you, wonder, you know what that means? It just means A is the first part of the text, generally speaking, where you have your first punctuation. B is second part of the text after the first punctuation. You know, that, that's all it is. It's just saying we're not talking about the first part of the verse. We're talking about the second part of the verse. So Isaiah 49, 6B just means second part of that verse. But I want to read for you a few verses out of Acts 13 where this is quoted. This part that says, I will make you for a light to the nations. A light to the nations. What does that mean? In Acts, we get a good understanding of what is to be said. Acts 13, 45. But when Jesus, uh, excuse me, not Jesus, the Jews. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, it was necessary that the word of God be first spoken to you. Who's the you? The Jews. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. The word Gentiles is the same word in Greek. Uh, when you look at the Greek version of the Old Testament, the word Gentiles, um, ethnos, is, is, it's it's it's, it's going to be a word that is translated either nations or Gentiles. That is, the world. Okay? It's just the world. There's either Jew or Gentile, basically. There's two groups. There's either the Jews or everybody else. Okay? And so it's saying, we came to you, the Jews, with the gospel, but you've rejected it. You, you don't like it. Well, that kind of sounds like Israel, doesn't it? So we're turning to the Gentiles, for the Lord has commanded us, saying, and here's our quotation from Isaiah 49, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that is, the nations, that you may bring salvations to the end of the earth. Here's what's a little confusing. I thought in Isaiah 49, I told you there's a little bit of work to be done, but it's okay, it's good work. He says, I have made, I'm making you, I'm making you as a light for the nations. Who's the you in Isaiah 49? The servant, right? But in Acts 13, they say, the Lord has commanded us saying, I will make you a light to the nations. So which is it? Is Jesus a light to the nations or are we a light to the nations? Which is it? And the answer, of course, we know the answer to that, don't we? We have already brought that, but this, this concept kind of, it comes a little bit uh, more clear over time as we look at it from multiple angles. I was going to talk about the uh, diaspora a little bit, but that can wait until next time. 
Let's talk about the light of the world. John 8, 12 says, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. The light of the world. What does that sound like? I will, you, I will make you a light to the nations. Jesus didn't invent this language. Do you see it? But when Jesus said, I am that light, was Jesus acquainted with what the prophets were saying about the servant? So when Jesus said, I am that light, do you think he knew what he was saying? He was specifically identifying himself as that great obedient servant. So I am that light. He says, I am the light of the world. And whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So how does that translate to us? Philippians 2, 14 and 15. I'll just read that. Philippians 2, 14 and 15. We spent a lot of time in Philippians, and this concept is about to be brought together, and we're going to move on in Isaiah 49. But when the text speaks as the servant being the light of the world, the light to the nations, and then we look at our New Testament, and it says, no, 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 we are the light of the nations. What is, how does all that work together? And you already know the answer, but let me just draw it for you out of Philippians 2, 14 and 15. Do all things without, what's the word there? Huh? In Greek, what's the word? Gungusmu. It's a gross word. It's a gross concept. That's how you remember. Gungusmu is grumbling in Greek. Okay? Stop the gungusmooing. Do all things without grumbling and disputing so that you might be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the, mix, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. How is it that we shine as lights in the world? When we are brought into Christ, we have this language of being found in Christ, right? When you are connected to Christ by faith, it is impossible that you would not be shining light. At one time, you were in darkness, but now you are in the light. I read that earlier during our music time, remember? At one time, you were in the darkness. You were not shining in this world, but by faith in Christ, the light of the world, when you had faith in him, you were pulled into him. And because you now find your identity in him, guess what happens to you? What happened to Moses when he was near the glory of God? he began reflecting the light of his God. Now, we have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You are going to reflect the glory of your Savior. That's how it works. So if you are truly found in Christ, who is the light of the world, then you will be shining. And in Philippians, and actually in many other places, how is it that we shine? By our conduct. By our conduct. Our conduct shines a transformed life. How bright is your light shining? I could have just said that and skipped the last 20 minutes, but it wouldn't have had the same impact. If you are connected to Christ by faith and he is the light of the world, then you, by association with him, are now lights in the world. And I'm asking you, how bright are you shining in this world 
for Christ. Because it is now us. It is now us. We, those who have faith in Christ, are now the lights of the world. So the obedient servant, what, go back. I, I have a little summary. Let's just read my summary. Uh, I said this earlier. Okay. Although these words do find their fulfillment in the servant, Christ, right? They do find their fulfillment in Christ. Uh, by means of our association and extension, by having faith in him, we become secondary agents through whom the servant completes that mission. Is Jesus here on earth? Where does Jesus reside? You, you better know the answer to that. Where does Jesus reside? I didn't get the same, I didn't get the same answer. Jesus Christ has ascended into heaven is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. But he said, I'm not going to leave you as orphans, right? And so what did he send? Who did he send? Is a proper phrasing of that. Who did he send? The Holy Spirit. But Jesus himself is in heaven. So how is the righteous servant accomplishing his mission of being a light to the nations? Huh? Through us. By faith in Christ, we are now fulfilling Isaiah 49. That's pretty unbelievable. Something that was spoken so long ago. Remember the prophetic career of Isaiah between 742 and 701 B.C.? 2,700 years ago. Finding its fulfillment in this room today, continually. At least the New Testament authors thought so. So unless we want to disagree with that, we have to say that's how it was understood. I recognize that I've spent a good deal of time up until verse 8. And so we're going to cover verses 8 through 13 next week. Okay? Let me draw one last parallel as we close our time together. And then we'll pick up with the rest of this text next week. I don't want to load you down with too much this morning. But I do just want you to turn with me to one last passage, and let's just make some application of what we've read today, okay? So turn with me, if you would, to 2 Corinthians 4. What have we read in the text today? Let me just summarize what we've said. There is a servant being described in Isaiah 49. But the servant being described is not rebellious Israel, this ethnic people. They, if they were, then would we need another servant? If they were able to do everything that God had required of them, would we need a Savior? And so there's this contrast of us constantly seeing a rebellious people, a rebellious servant, with all of a sudden inserted, whoa, here's a good servant. Where did he come from? And it makes our hearts long for that servant because we see it in contrast to disobedience, right? We understand, being on the other side of these things, that the New Testament authors were telling us, how does it find its fulfillment? It finds its fulfillment in Christ. And now you, by extension... Because now you have been brought into the household of God. Now you are called sons of God. What kind of son? An obedient son. A stiff-necked son. All sons, by the way. We're all sons, by the way. 
because sons get an inheritance. We're all sons of God. Now, we have the grace of God that every disobedience has been placed on Christ. That's what the word propitiation means, that we, we were disobedient and there was punishment for that, but God took all of it away in Christ. And so we have the grace of God that even if we're disobedient children, we have salvation in the righteous one, Jesus Christ. But as I said, I, w- I want to end here. Second Corinthians chapter 4, did you turn there? You looking at it with me? Verses 1 through 6, it says, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. Is this true of us? Is all this true of us so far, by the, by the, way, by the way? That we're not losing heart. We're, we've renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. And we refuse, we refuse to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. But if our gospel is veiled, that is, if our gospel is veiled to the world, we understand what veiled means. It's covered. They don't see it. If I was, if I was doing something, but I had a curtain here, and I was saying, look at it, just look at it. You say, I, we can't see what, what are you, what are you talking about? Because you can't see because there's a veil. This is, this is us proclaiming the gospel, being the light of the world through our extension, through faith in Christ, right? And the world sees, and some people, they don't get what we're saying. But even in that, we refuse, though, to tamper with God's word. We refuse. We're not going to change what God has to say just because the world is blind to it and doesn't like it. We're not going to do that. We've renounced that. We're not going to tamper with the word of God. But it says, even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. And in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves. (laughs) Aren't we thankful for that? I do not have a message of saying, just be like me, everybody. I don't know why you don't just be more like me. I'm great. Do you see how obedient I am in my, in my life? I'm perfectly faithful. Why don't you just be faithful already? Everybody just be like me. It'd be funny if someone, that, that's the only part of this message they hear. That just be, just be like, that's not our message, is it? Is our message be good like me? Change your behavior like me? Go to church like me? Give money to good things like me? Our gospel is not about us. It is not us we proclaim, right? But we're proclaiming something else. We're proclaiming Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. You see, we still are proclaiming because this is the ministry we've been given, the ministry of reconciliation. That's the larger context of 2 Corinthians 4. He's he's talking about this ministry of reconciliation that's been given to believers to call the world to be reconciled to their God. How? By faith in Christ. We're not proclaiming ourselves. We're not proclaiming anything other than have faith in Christ. And then here it says, what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone 
in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so here is how the light of the world shines. It shines in the hearts of all of us. It shines. Do you remember, this passage is specifically um, very impactful for me because some of you have this story, some of you don't, but can you clearly remember your life being nothing but darkness? Do you remember that world? I remember that world vividly. It terrifies me. It disgusts me. But I know it, and I can still feel it. I can feel that world want to cling to me. I can feel that world want to take me back over and drag me back down into the darkness, but it can't because the light overcomes the darkness. And just as God spoke, let there be light, and there was light in creation, when he says to the unbelieving, dark-hearted believer, let there be light, what happens? There is light. And it's impossible that there would not be light. Because when God says, let there be light, it happens. This is what we proclaim. The light of the world. What is the light? It is not good behavior. The light is Jesus Christ. The light is salvation. Do you see it? We are servants for his sake. God working through us. That's what Paul is saying here. So Jesus Christ has ascended into the heavens and he he has given us now work to do. The common word used for us in the New Testament is doulos, slaves, bondservants. Do bondservants have jobs? Or they say, hey, you know what, you just wait until you die and just live your life in luxury here, right? Because you're mine after all, you live in my household. I have everything, I own everything. So just do whatever you want. No responsibilities. Is that how it seems to work? Or do we have something to do here? Do we have a mission? We have a mission to be the light of the world. How can we do that? Because we have the Spirit of God in us, that's how. And we live transformed lives in this world. Do you want to be a light shining in a dark world? Then live and proclaim the gospel. It is one thing to speak the gospel. It is another thing to live a transformed life. Right? I want to be the kind of church where someone looks in at us and they have to shield their eyes because there is too much to take in here. I would love for people to see the glory of God radiating from the hearts of the people of this church. But how does that come? By acknowledging where the darkness is in our lives, right? I hope today that what you've seen, and we've ended in a quite a bit different place than I intended to, but I hope that you have seen here that our reliance must be upon Jesus Christ for his righteousness because God sent his servant into the world to be the light to the nations, you are the recipient of that light. If Jesus Christ had not been born, there would be no light for you. Do you see that? Jesus Christ was born into a a world that was dim or a world that was dark. There was no light until Christ came in, and now the light of Christ is spreading, and we are that light. But we need to represent our Savior well and rejoice in what he has done. It should lead us into rejoicing together. 
I'll finish on that note this morning. Uh, let's all pray together.